your left, please. Well, what an image, one that's bound to come up more than a few times during what is the longest election campaign in Canadian history. And guess what? It has only got 116 days left. But if you like close races, you've got to love the way this one is shaping up. Andrew and Chantel are here, and so this week our Canadian press is Jennifer Ditchburn and our Ottawa Bureau Chief, Rob Russo. So you watch Dean Del Mastro in cuffs and leg irons. What do you make of that? I thought it was over the top. I mean, Dean Del Mastro is not everyone's cup of tea, and what he's been convicted of is a serious offense. Uh, I think he probably deserves to do jail time. Did he deserve to be humiliated in that fashion, very publicly, leg irons as if he was some kind of violent uh, person? I, I think it was uh, really over the top. Can't, I certainly can't remember seeing anything like that in terms of the, you know, our past MPs who've, uh, you know, done things wrong and, and been convicted and, and gone to jail. Leg irons, Chantel. I was also uncomfortable with uh, the way that this happened, but I also thought what a vignette for a government that came in promising to clean up the system to end the decade with an image like that. And the other thought that struck me was if we did not have fixed election dates, we would not be having an election early in the fall. We would either have had it last fall after the Ottawa shooting or we would be having it later. Just really the beginning of the big campaign. You got these pictures, and then you're going to see the former chief of staff in the witness box of the of the Duffy trial on mm -hmm. charges, not him, but uh, answering to charges of, of, of possible bribery. Jennifer, what do you make of uh, this today? I think it's the list that is the problem. So you mentioned Dean Del Mastro, Nigel Wright, Mike Duffy, Pamela Wallen, Bruce Carson, Patrick Brazo, Solly Zidell, um, I had to write them down because I Peter Panashaway, Arthur Porter, and, that, and that's not the whole list. So people that the prime minister's had to distance himself from because of the political embarrassment. And I think so it's not just Dean Del Mastro, it's the, you know, all these people over the last nine years. Rob? Yeah, I, I think if we, if we go to one of my political gurus, Homer Simpson, <laughs> and, and we think of, of uh, him in the nuclear plant, and there's that sign up on the wall that says, you know, one day without an, an accident, and the next thing you know, somebody becomes radioactive. It, it looks like somebody's becoming radioactive all the time. Smacks have ended the regime. Today it was Mr. Del Mastro reminding people of some of the ethical problems the government's had. Last week was Senator Don Meredith. The week before, it was uh, Senators uh, Housakos and Carignan who were forced to pay back. It, it's just every time this government thinks it's going to put something behind them, uh, it doesn't get the chance to do that. Somebody else lights up. Let's go through a, a kind of checklist on, 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 on what we're looking at as this campaign really launches. And I know we've said this a number of times this year already that the campaign has started. Uh, but it really does seem like it has. And there's a debate coming up uh, within a month and, you know, an election not till October 19th. Who's the most election ready of the parties? I mean, when you look at what they're, what they're doing, who's, who's most election ready? Chantal? I think they're all more election ready at this point than under the old system. Uh, so looking at, at the NDP, the Liberals, uh, the Conservatives, I think they know how they're going to roll it out once it really gets started. I think none of them is really ready for where they are on the polls at this juncture. And that includes the NDP that is 
up ahead uh, and suddenly is under greater scrutiny. You mentioned polls, and <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> we keep saying we're not going to talk about polls. But this point is interesting because it is 116 days that one party clearly seems to have a lead. They all, nobody's disputing that now. None of the parties seem to be disputing it. But keep in mind the things that can happen in 116 days. Look at this. This is a 2008 campaign. You look at the numbers uh, in terms of where it was with 116 days to go, like today on this one, and the final uh, results, a shift in, in for the Tories of four points going up, plus four, you have the Liberals down four, uh, NDP more or less flat uh, on that in the 08 campaign. But now look at the 2011 campaign, because there was quite a shift in that kind of 116-day period. You got the Conservatives going up almost five points, which made the difference for them, got them their majority. Liberals dropping nine points. Look at the NDP number, Jack Layton, up 15 points in those final months. Got, uh, you know, the momentum happened for the NDP. So, it, you know, it's a good reminder for all of us to be careful about whatever we seem to judge in terms of the, the polls we see. Sure, and if you looked back 116 days from now, you'd find very different poll results than we have now. That's There's right. a lot of volatility, particularly between NDP and Liberal voters. I think the Conservatives have a certain number of advantages going into this, notwithstanding where they are on the polls right now, but they are still out fundraising both of the other parties combined. They have the advantages of incumbency in terms of being able to run government ads, to announce government spending programs, to you know, control the agenda with policy announcements. Um, and they have, you know, the, the, they seem to have driven or tailored the election, the election debates to some extent to their design. They can't obviously control that, but they're going to be very different election debates than we've had in the past in ways that presumably they thought would be to some extent either to their advantage or lessening their, the disadvantage of incumbency. So, um, you know, if you're talking about, talking about who's most election ready, I think in those ways they are. All right. Uh, let's say, you know, part of any campaign is taking certain risks. Who's taken the biggest risk so far, whether it's a, a leader or a party? Jennifer? I'm going to answer that by say, saying who I think take, took the least amount of risk. <laughs> and I think that that's the Conservatives. If you look back, I think we were talking about on this panel, the last cabinet shuffle, uh, he really didn't take any risk at all. He, he kept the usual suspects in the, in the same jobs, mostly. Uh, he didn't promote women, for example, to any of the, the high... Um, the, the upper echelons of cabinet, um, some of the sort of fresher-faced people in, in, uh, in the caucus remained in sort of more junior port, uh, portfolios. So I think in that sense, Stephen Harper, a year later, maybe he's looking back, and all these people that he chose, Peter McKay, John Baird, um, they're, uh, James Moore, they've gone or they've been demoted, Julian Fantino, that team. And I think you wrote a really good column just on that particular um, point that, uh, you know, that cabinet that he made back then, oh, now it's looking a little bit stale. So in some ways, taking the biggest risk by taking no risk, mm -hmm. right? Right. Ron? I, I think Justin, uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were trying not to take risks for a while while they were hitting the polls. They were mm -hmm. running a, a, a bubble campaign and trying to low bridge them. I, I think they've read the polls, uh, even though they might change over the next little while, and they've clearly changed their tact. There's a tacit admission that things are not going the way that they'd hoped for at this point. And he was elusive for a little while. Uh, and all of a sudden, the policy's coming out. He's doing lengthy sit-down interviews. We were trying to get him for a while uh, on the House and at Power and Politics in Ottawa. And now he's, he's available to us twice in, in a span of a week. That's a tacit admission that things aren't going well. And he needs to take some risks now. And he's taking them by exposing himself during these interviews and taking some stands that the conservatives are using to quickly cut internet ads and trying to take advantage of.
Chantal? Well, it's, it's interesting that up to a point, the NDP has been taking the risk of making itself more user-friendly and less risky, uh, while the Liberals, because they are trying to get votes off the NDP, have taken risks, and you would argue they've taken the most risks by saying they would raise the income tax of wealthier Canadians, uh, that they would cancel some of the benefits, uh, that they would change the electoral system between this election and the next. Those are all risks. Whether it pays off is another issue, but I think it speaks to the change dynamics of the spring. Yes, there's a movement in the poll, but there is a sense that there's been a more fundamental shift in the polls than the Liberals imagined, and so they have been taking risks. You know, uh, Jennifer mentioned uh, some of the cabinet ministers who, who aren't running again. There are a number of incumbents, in fact, 54 in total, uh, who will not be running in this next campaign, whether they're Conservatives, NDP, or Liberals. Uh, we're going to roll them here. Uh, beside me, as we talk about this, there's so many of them, we, we, we can't talk about each of them. But that represents about one-sixth of the current parliament in terms of MPs who won't run again. Most of them are Conservatives, about half, a little more than half, are Conservatives. Of all those uh, members of Parliament who have decided not to go again, uh, whose departure is perhaps the most significant? Andrew? I think I would say John Baird. I mean, I think he was uh, the biggest hitter of the cabinet ministers who've decided not to run again. Uh, potential leadership aspirant. People kind of go back and forth on whether he would ever run or not, but, but, uh, but certainly of that caliber. Um, and the way in which he left, of course, was very strange, not even telling Harper ahead of time. I think that was, gave you a, 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 certainly a sign of some of the unease, if, if not uh, disquieted, within the, that liberal, uh, that conservative cabinet. Uh, uh, I think that was the most in, impactful. Jennifer? Mm -hmm. um, I'd uh, say a group. I'm, I'm going to cheat here a little mm -hmm. bit. But, uh, so John Baird, James Moore, and um, Shelley Glover, uh, if, if I look at uh, that group, um, they're, they're the sort of moderates in, in the cabinet, uh, pro-choice, uh, pro-gay marriage. Some of them voted back in the day. Um, they're, uh, they're not the social conservatives. And so I think that represents quite a loss for the Harper team and the Harper cabinet. There's nothing wrong with being surrounded by social conservatives. But if you want to hold on to that element of the population that gave you a vote... Um, the last time around, I think that you know you need some of those those people around you, and they and they've gone on. That's it. Rob, I think the biggest surprise was was James Moore. Uh, I I think that uh, that John Baird was looking at his future. People knew that he was weighing things, and I I think Andrew's right. I think there are people who are going to be nudging him back into leadership. I don't think he's done necessarily with politics. Uh, James Moore's uh, announcement seemed to be completely unplanned. If you look at what the Prime Minister has said after some of these ministers have departed, uh, his, his reactions have varied, but he said generally nice things. With, with Minister Baird, he got a statement. Uh, I think he might not have been happy about having you tell the Prime Minister that, uh, that Baird was resigning. Um, Peter McKay got a trip. Uh, the Prime Minister went to visit him. Absolute silence when Moore decided he was going to step away. Uh, Moore was in Ottawa. There was no press conference. It was clearly rushed. Uh, it, it wasn't in any way orchestrated. I think there are still some an unanswered questions there, and, and I think that was a surprise to a lot of people who thought that he was going to be the one who was going to pick up the progressive conservative mantle of the party. Uh, right now, everybody thinks it's Jason Kenney's party. Leadership politics, always a part of party politics. People are talking about this being the, the prime minister's last election. Right now, it's Jason Kenney's uh, party. 
people were looking to James Moore, and he's suddenly not there. So, I was struck uh, uh, by this group leaving, the accumulation of them, but also the fact that they were people that Stephen Harper really needed in strategic regions. I was in Halifax uh, about a week before Peter McKay announced that he retired. He was the only uh, person that was conservative about whom I heard anything positive. Uh, and possibly the only one who was sure to win a seat. The same goes for Moore in British Columbia. I don't know if he would have kept his seat, but it would have been important to have someone like that face off against the NDP and the Liberals in that province. Uh, John Baird in Ontario, Jim Flaherty, when he was around, they were all the happier face of the government. And, and when Stephen Harper merged those two parties, he needed the, the not-social-conservative Tories to bring that vote over to him. These voters that they need to bring back that are not there in the polls probably voted for Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin at some point and then voted for Stephen Harper and gave him a majority. People like that reassured them and so many of them have gone that uh, now you're left uh, saying, well, there's Jason Kenney. I'm not sure that works. And again, it reinforces both this image and reality that you have Harper and a dwindling band of loyalists around him. Uh, that it's, it's not the Conservative Party anymore, it's the Harper Party. You know, there is this theory that, that some of these departures were designed to try to send a message to Stephen Harper. Does any, did anybody buy into that theory? Well, I do think that there were people in the party who were concerned about the direction of the party, but they could have spoken up in caucus. Um, you, you didn't in need Michael, uh, Yeah, you didn't need Michael Chong's bill to, to bring down a leader, uh, and they chose not to. He has an absolute grip. On, on the party apparatus, such as it is, it's not much of a party. It's really just a few people in between elections at 55 Metcalf, uh, and he has an absolute... And they're running ads featuring him. You look at the approval numbers, the you know, approval versus disapproval. He's 30% approval, 60% disapproval. He's a negative 30. And Mulcair is a positive 30, and Justin mm -hmm. Trudeau is kind of a 50-50. And their campaign is all, as you say, built around him. It's extraordinary. Yes, uh, and remember when Jean Chrétien ran his last campaign in he, Quebec. He obviously doesn't like No, he's, you're getting a call, but <laughs> when he ran his last campaign uh, in Quebec in particular, he had all these commercials with Paul Martin next to him, right? Uh, and that certainly helped, but that is how he kind of made himself more acceptable to say, I'm more than just me. You may be getting tired of me, but I have this great team and here's Paul Martin. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you know, Stephen Harper, uh, who would he have on a commercial at this point? But they're counting on the fact that people have made up their minds about him. And uh, there are a lot of people who don't like him, but he knows that. And he's, he, he's in, in a sense saying... You don't like me, but you respect me, and I'm prepared to, to go to you again and ask you. I covered Pierre Trudeau at the tail end of it in Ontario, where people now say that Trudeau walks on water, and no one wanted, and you remember yeah, that too, sure. no one wanted to have him in a hall. They, didn't want, they wanted him gone. So it, just because you know someone and you like them doesn't mean you still want that person. It's funny how time makes people forget, right? <laughs> All right, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, it's photo op of the week time. And just like the race, it's a three-way tie this week. And if you're wondering, Rex is away this week. That's why we get the extra few minutes. Andrew, Chantel, Jennifer Ditchburn, and Rob Russo are all here tonight. Photo ops of the week, and they're all at it now. So here they are, starting with... Uh, Stephen Harper, he had this picture taken at 24 Sussex, hosting a dinner 
uh, for Ramadan with uh, a number of uh, Muslim leaders in attendance. And here we go with Justin Trudeau taking a selfie, right, in a barber shop in Aurora, Ontario. And finally, Tom O'Care has a beer at a microbrewery in Quebec City on Tuesday. You know, what we'll do for votes, right? <laughs> okay, what race are you going to be watching most closely as we get into this? It could be a riding, could be a region. Um, Jennifer. Greater Toronto area. And if you see me in Mississauga or Brampton, you can come and <laughs> tell me how you're going to vote. But I'll be, and why? Uh, because, um, I mean, the Conservatives really won Ontario uh, the last election. It wasn't just about vote splitting. They really won it. Are they going to hold on to the ethnic communities that they managed to win over? Um, is there going to continue to be some vote splitting between the Liberals and the NDP in some of these key ridings the next time around? I, I, I'm interested in the GTA and what's going to happen around here. Rob. I think, I think that's right. I think if you look at where the, the conservative power base is traditionally, it's Western Canada. Quebec now belongs to the NDP. Atlantic Canada belongs to the Liberals. So you win your election really in Ontario. Uh, that's how the Conservatives won their majority the last time. And I'll give you a riding to watch, and that's Vaughan, where uh, uh, Julian Fantino has had some trouble as a minister. They, that's traditionally a Liberal stronghold. They've taken it the last couple of times. Let's see if they can hold on to it this time. Watch that one. Andrew. Uh, British Columbia, uh, partly for the reasons that Rob's saying, that Atlantic Canada and Quebec and the Prairies, you kind of know who's going to be in the lead there. There will be a lot of split votes, a lot of interesting ridings in Ontario, but um, I think it's going to be so close that it's going to be British Columbia that we're going to finally find out on election night uh, who has the most seats. Finally going to see that, right? <laughs> I always say that's going to happen. I guess it was 72, really, the last time it really came down to BC. Chantal. I'll rent a van with Jennifer for, for, for the Ontario <laughs> yeah. thing. But I'll just remind people that at this uh, juncture, last time, mm -hmm. we all set aside Quebec as a done deal for that's the right. Bloc Québécois. Nothing was going to happen mm -hmm. there. And we all made plans to cover, you know, I was going to spend a lot of time in Ontario and Western Canada and ended up spending most of the time in Montreal because that is where the biggest surprise actually materialized. And you were one of the first to notice that it was happening. Oh, I right lived there, thank program. God. So, so what's we expect, surprise this time? Yes, we expect the same I'm kind of insight <laughs> on the return of the block. Okay, we'll see. No, no, I didn't predict <laughs> you didn't that. Say that. I didn't All predict right. that. We'll wait to see it. All right. Lots of reasons for special ad issues this summer, an early August debate, Nigel Wright's testimony, the Duffy trial, and all those things we can't predict, but are sure are going to happen anyway. So expect to see us more than a few times in the summer as well.